Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, it's Susan. Today we're going to take a double time travel trip. Not only are we going to travel back in time to the late 1800s, early 1900s, but we're going to travel back into our archives to the Gilded Age, specifically Gilded Age heiresses and servants, and usually they're presented in that order. Heiresses, they're so glitzy and glamorous. We want to hear all those stories. Oh, and then about the servants. But we're going to switch it up a little bit. First, Beckett is going to talk about the servants of the era, the servants that our Gilded Age heiresses would have encountered once they moved to their new homes in Europe. And then we're going to talk about Gilded Age heiresses together. We're going to talk about three different waves of heiresses and how we got to the position that moneyed American women were going to Europe to married titled nobility. How do we get there? Now, why is this so so important to us right now? Two words, Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, the television show, premiered here in the United States in January of 2011. You know what else premiered in January of 2011? The History Chicks. And Downton Abbey and the History Chicks are kind of related. Julian Fellows and Beckett Graham both used the same book to inspire their projects. So we've always felt a kinship to our cousins at Downton Abbey. And because the movie's coming out, we ourselves have been thinking a lot about the Gilded Age, so we figured you would too. The two episodes that we've combined today are from 2011. They're from the very beginning of our journey here podcasting. We recorded this back when we sat around one microphone together at one table, a large wooden table in a large wooden house, Beckett's house, the house of wood. So we've done our best to clean up the audio. We've edited it down a little bit and combined the two episodes. Uh, In editing, we noticed a couple of things that we promised that we haven't really done. I do want to say there is no no specific governess episode in our archives. However, the governess plays a really important role in quite a few of our subjects' lives. Over the years, I think we've painted a really good picture of this important member of the household's life. So now on with the show. First up, Gilded Age Servants. There was a complete spectrum of servant life around this time from the poor, single, lonely, only servant maid of all work who worked from pre-dawn until after bedtime and was often, frankly, found dead asleep in the coal bin hole, who did all the work. To the servants of Blenheim, which there's 90 servants. So you can imagine, even though it's a bigger place, I think that perhaps the labor was debated more fairly. As you go up the scale, it definitely seems like a better life to me. Now, if you could think of a specialty, they probably existed, especially once you get up to that upper level. So, I mean, you've got things like gamekeepers for the country estates. You've got watermen who's sole job was to carry the water up and down the stairs or in later times, you know, use the lift and take the water upstairs for baths and everything. There were coal men, there were fountain men and Marie Antoinette's Versailles. There were dairy maids, always strapping young ladies, but most establishments did not have such specialties. And in fact, I'm not even going to talk about the rest of the outdoor servants like gardeners, coachmen, grooms, etc. I just think let's leave those for another day. So what I'm going to concentrate on is your average millionaire lord's establishment that the Gilded Age heiresses may have come across as they came to their new husband's houses in England. Now, the servants had their own very strict hierarchy. 
Let's start with the upper servants. The butler, um, his name comes from the old French butler, which later produced the word, the modern French word, bouteille, which means bottle. So he was in charge mostly of the wine at the beginning. The wine, the wine cellar, ordering, maintaining, and in fact, famously, many butlers were famous for the drinking of said wine. The list of drunken butlers in truth and fiction is very long indeed. He guarded the silver cabinet, in fact, often slept near or in the silver cabinet. He was the boss of all the servants, but the male ones in particular, and he was very close to the master of the house. He was in charge of basically anything that happens in front of the family members or in front of guests. So he's in charge of dinner, service at dinner, welcoming of guests, and then making sure everything goes smoothly at the front of the house. So he's like the maitre d'. Conversely, his counterpart in the back of house is the housekeeper. And honestly, I think this person had all the real work as far as I'm concerned. So and she's in charge of all the female servants, but not just in charge of their work. She was also in charge of their morals. Now, a lot of these girls came from the country, country servants preferred, probably not as streetwise, not as sassy, not as prone to talk back to you, but also they were far away from their families, and the housekeeper was often charged with keeping them on the straight and narrow. They came to her as early as 12 in our period, but slightly earlier they might have come as early as 8 years old, if you can imagine that. She's also got all the accounts to do. She orders all supplies. She's supposed to know where each and every person is at all times. She's in charge of repairs to the place, monitoring decorators, determining when things are worn out and need to be replaced. The list is infinite of what she was responsible for. She had great amounts of contact with the mistress of the house with regard to the way that the household should function. Now, we talked before about the importance and, honestly, the intricacies of all the food for special events. So the cook or the chef, if you were up there in social status, had a lot of responsibility for the way that the family appeared in public. But... Even when only the family was in residence, you had food to go to the family dinner, perhaps breakfast up on trays. You had to get some food to the nursery. There was the upper servant's dining room and the lower servant's dining room. And sometimes even the outside servants had their own dining room. And everyone ate something different. You see, there's all kinds of permutations and also light refreshments for callers. I mean, you had a lot of things to do. So even when there were no guests, man, the chef... You know, if you had a chef, if you were lucky, was usually French and always volatile. I'll tell you what, I am married to a chef and you'd do anything to keep your chef too. So a lot of times you'd put up with a heck of a lot of bad behavior from a chef where you wouldn't put up with anything from anyone else. The cooks and the housekeepers uh, often were a little at odds because their spheres overlapped. You know, the housekeeper had charge of all the supplies and ordering them that the cook needed. But the cook needed to boss people around and be independent and have their own sphere, too. They even shared responsibility for a couple of different maids that we'll talk about later. So there was some opportunity for conflict in that area, too. And then we come to the valet, not valet, valet and lady's maid. There might be more than one. As a matter of fact, if there were grown children in the house or, you know, like Mrs. Astor and her son and her son's wife. So there might be more than one of these people in the house. They were responsible for maintaining clothing and dressing their person, guarding the jewelry, doing hair, honestly being a confidant, too. These people often became closer to their master or mistress than their own children just due to proximity. And these servants had the closest relationship with their family. And they were expected, honestly, to pass on servants' gossip but not let it go the other direction. So, I don't know. Good luck with that. They were often distrusted, though, by the other servants for that very reason. 
because the other servants thought they might tattle. And they probably did tattle and get people in trouble. So, you know, their relationship with downstairs was a little bit tenuous, I think. And the valets might shave their master with one of those straight razors. Oh, my goodness. You better hope he likes you. And uh, the valet also had responsibility for travel arrangements, and he often kept sums of money on him to pay bills or um, little traveling expenses like tolls or whatever. And he could get that back from the butler, but he had a little bit of cash on him to take care of little expenses on the way. These servants were all called by their last name by the family. The chef was Monsieur, of course, if he was French, but everyone else was Mr. or Mrs. Mr. Graham, Mrs. Graham. The cook and the housekeeper were called Mrs. even if they'd never, there'd never been a Mr. anywhere. So that's good. They got the honorary Mrs. But the valets and the ladies' maids were often just called by their last names alone with no honorific. If the household was busy enough, and, you know, full enough of servants, they ate separately. In fact, they had their own separate dining room. It seems like splitting hairs to me, but they were served by um, other servants. So if not, everyone was seated in one big servants' hall by their rank, very strictly. Servants were more concerned about that than their masters almost, I think. And if they all ate together, there was also this refinement where the upper servants would literally pick their dessert up and proceed into the housekeeper's sitting room to eat their dessert to emphasize that they, in fact, were separate from the lower servants that had to stay behind and eat their sometimes lesser dessert at the main table. Does that seem silly to you? So let's come to the lower servants. So if you're a lower servant, be prepared to change your name, for one thing. If there's already a family member named Mary, for example, and your name's Mary, you can just forget it. They're going to call you Sarah or Emma or whatever they want to, sometimes the family just couldn't be bothered to learn anyone's new name. You know, maybe there was a new second housemaid. Well, whatever. And so she was just called the name of their predecessor forever. (laughs) She never had her own name. So be prepared for that. In addition, if you were a servant and you went visiting and there were a lot of visitors at the same time, often you would be called simply by your mistress's name to avoid confusion. So just be prepared to lose your name. So let's start with the male side of the lower servants, footmen. Their name came from the fact that there used to be men that would literally run beside the carriage to make sure that the wheels were not going to get snapped by roots, that they weren't going to fall off the track. Literally, there used to be some poor souls that had to do that all day. So good for them. But in our era, footmen have literally nothing to do officially but look fancy. They were hired for their looks. They were hired for their height. If you were a footman that was fabulously attractive and over six feet tall, you could command almost double the wage of a poor, unfortunate, five foot eight, less favored gentleman. But matched pairs, matched pairs of footmen were considered quite lovely. They were always dressed in livery, which is a very fancy outfit, um, often chosen to express closeness to the royal family or it's a traditional color. And their livery was paid for by the master and mistress. If they were unlucky... These men worked under a butler that expected him to do things, like be in charge of the silver polishing or or carrying in wood that might get them dirty. But usually they just had to serve at dinner and open and close doors, uh, look good on the carriage, carry heavy things like all those packages, perhaps, that Milady is shopping with as she goes down the street. It's a cushy job, don't you think? Nothing official to do but look fancy. So I'll take that one. Also, idle hands being the devil's playground, etc., footmen were notorious for handsiness. So the maid that could evade the footman was uh, in good shape. Now let's finish up the male servants with the hall boy, the lowest of the low. He literally slept in the hall. He was everyone's dog's body. Anything disagreeable and dirty always fell to him if there was a hall boy. 
chamber pots, shoe cleaning, shoveling coal. Their only hope for getting out of there is to get promoted to footman. Now, that's a big leap from drudgery to fanciness. I'd want to get promoted, too. Now, he'd have to be awfully presentable, though, to make that leap. So, good luck to him. Now, let's go to the lady servants. Now, infinite combinations here, depending on how the family was assembled. Did they have children? How old are they? Etc. So, in general, housemaids... These poor souls cleaned everything without modern conveniences or anything. There's no vacuums about now. They are also expected to get all their work done without any member of the house seeing it, which seems like subterfuge to me. Everybody's down to breakfast. The housemaids race up and clean everyone's bedroom and bathroom, pick up all the clothes, blah, 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 blah. But they have to be out before everyone comes up to change for the next activity. Golly. And if you encountered somebody on the steps and you were a housemaid trying to desperately clean the carpet of the main stairs with little sprinklings of tea leaves and a little brush and dustpan. I'm not making that up, by the way. You had to pretend to be invisible, basically freeze and face the wall. And your mistress was supposed to not acknowledge you because it was supposed to embarrass you to be seen as a human being. So they also had to light fires while people were asleep and they got in trouble if they woke someone up while they were lighting the fires in the morning. So these poor ladies worked from the early hours of the morning till 9 or 10 solidly. I would not doubt that they were just exhausted at the end of the day. I would not want to be a housemaid, but I tell you what, she got good meals in a clean environment and often got a small room to herself or just had to share with one person. And a lot of these girls came from the country and had to share with, you know, eight or nine brothers or sisters in a very small house. So this did seem like a step up. I suppose the work was no no harder than what they would have had at home. So as horrible as it seems to us, it was a step up for them. In houses with no butler, there might be a person called a parlor maid that was chosen for her extreme good looks, and she had to be visible and answer the door, etc. Now, this would be a lower um, a lower income house that couldn't afford a butler. Men servants were seen as higher status. But she had light duties such as dusting, etc. Now, she had to stay clean, but I think this lady was probably subject to more harassment than anybody else in the house from male visitors and other employees. I'm just, the the history of the parlor maid, it just seems like that's something she had to deal with. So there's light duty, but then there's that added stress. So let's talk about kitchen maids and laundry maids. Now it's pretty obvious what each of these guys did. They did need more kitchen maids during entertaining, and often relatives of existing servants, or they would borrow them from neighbors. At times there's 20 kitchen maids bashing around down there if they've got a lot of company. Interestingly, laundry maids had a reputation for being loose women. Maybe all that warm bed linen and the rolling up of sleeves in the heat made them irresistible. I don't know. So I suppose if you found out your daughter's been hired as a laundry maid, you're going to want to trot up there and give her a bit of a talking to. And poor old scullery maids. I think if you don't know too much about any other maid, you know that being a scullery maid is not a good time. Scullery comes from a word from 1300s French called esquilerie, which means basically dishes. And um, male scullery maids back in the day were called scullions. That also sounds very low. But a scullery maid was a person who spent most of her whole day washing dishes. Although she had to mop the kitchen floor and make sure the ovens didn't go out and, you know, maybe a little break to pluck some geese or pheasants or chickens. Woo, what a break. You know, that doesn't sound like a break to me. But this is one person who seriously never left the kitchen. They would start at 12 or 13 in in our time period um, and she would work pre-dawn as it's her job to stoke and start the kitchen fires so that the chef can emerge and not have to mess with that. 
And so she was on duty till well after dinner because there could be 2,000 dishes coming through there a day. And so, you know, everyone else could kind of knock off once the guests went to bed. But until all those dishes were washed, the scullery maid was still on duty. She didn't even get to eat at the servant's table at dinner, not even the lower servant's table. She had to eat in the kitchen and keep an eye on all the food that was still cooking for the family upstairs because the servants ate before the family upstairs. It was just a different schedule. So here you are with this scullery maid downstairs. She's alone in the kitchen, and I can see either some sampling or some spitting. And I hope it's the former. Now, a little companion to our poor little scullery maid might have been the between maid, which appears in literature quite often, and I never quite understood what it was. But the fact is, the between maid is basically working for every department of the house. She might work in the nursery. She might work in the kitchen. She might work with the housemaids. And in fact, having three bosses to pull on her, I think her name means pulled between all these people. Poor old thing. She was a low-ranking servant and kind of had to skitter about taking orders from whoever. And she was, in fact, the one that served at the lower servant's table as their waitress. Well, the scullery maid was in the kitchen watching and spitting in everyone's food. Good times. There was another person who was divided between the housekeeper and the cook, causing a little tension. Not every house had them, but this was called the still room maid. And a still room maid was in charge of bottling preserves and making cordials, both medicinal and non-medicinal. She was under the housekeeper in that, you know, she was providing supplies that the housekeeper had to account for. She was also under the cook as she dealt with food. So that was a constant tussle between the two of them. The still roommate often had responsibility for preparing the trays to go up to ladies for breakfast. So what were servants paid? Interestingly, they were paid a separate stipend for essentials, And here's what they considered essentials, tea, sugar, washing, and beer. So a lot of times there was a separate amount given to them just for those purposes. And also keep in mind that they didn't have very many expenses. These people, all their food was paid for. There really weren't any travel expenses. So these amounts seem really low, but also keep in mind they had room and board the whole time too. Butlers and valets often made 12000 a year. I've converted it for modern-day money, by the way. Chefs could go as high as the market would bear, honestly. A talented French chef with the proper attitude. I hate to think what salary he could command. Cooks went down from there and housekeepers. Footmen down from there. Maids, my goodness, maids went from 3000 a year down to the scullery maid could make about 1000 a year, which at the time, nine pounds a year. Doesn't that sound low? Nine pounds a year. But keep in mind, they had few expenses again. Um, although unfairly, livery, i.e. boy clothes, was paid for separately by the master and mistress of the house. But uniforms, i.e. girl clothes, were not. If you were a female servant, you had to buy your own uniform out of your own money. Most maids were gone by the age of 25, having married and become ineligible for employment. But some were able to climb to cook and housekeeper or even ladies' maid status. Um, having been a servant in a grand house was considered good training for married life. Now, there's one servant that I have left out that features in quite a few books of this time period, the governess. But I would really like to save the governess for a future podcast. She actually belongs to a different social class than the people we've been talking about. And I think she needs a little more context. And so we will leave the governess for later. 
Now, servanthood as an institution started to wane with the advent of the Industrial Revolution. Many of former servants, especially the young ones, would rather work in a factory and be independent than be at the beck and call of, you know, a toffee-nosed upperclassman. That's when it started to wane, and honestly, I think World War II in its entirety, put the kibosh on, on this as an institution. There are still butlers and servants around. You can still find them, but it is nowhere near the generally accepted institution that it once was. Let me recommend some servant-related things for you to see. First, the classic Upstairs Downstairs. Um, It's not available right now on Netflix streaming, but if you do have Netflix, I believe for $2 extra, you can get them to send you the DVDs. The DVDs are available on Netflix, so that's awesome. I had hoped it was streaming, but it's not. Second. Please get the Manor House, or if you're in Britain, as many of you are, the 1910 House. It's the exact same, it's the exact same show, just called different things. Modern people were set up to live as masters and servants. It is so awesome. In particular, I love the way that the little boy of the household, who was about eight or nine at the time, became so close during the process of this experiment to the servants that when something awesome happened, instead of running upstairs to tell his parents, as he would have only two months ago, he ran downstairs to the servants' hall and wanted to show all the footmen the fish he had caught. That, isn't that strange? Isn't that interesting? And and the mother, um, who after all is just a modern mother, was panicking that her son, she just realized how distant she would be to her own little son had they lived in this formal time period. It's just very interesting. So do pick that up. They also have, and I'll post the link, a website with rules for servants, rules for the master and missus, the schedules of everybody's work. There's a corresponding one that doesn't have an American equivalent called the 1900 house in which the family in question lives in the city of London, whereas Manor House is a country estate. So those two shows, highly recommend. Third of all, um, this is out of our period, but also gives you a really good picture of how the servant halls worked. Gosford Park, Robert Altman's murder mystery film, is actually shot from a servant perspective, and it'll give you a good idea of daily servant life. And I will give you a link to a wonderful Harper's Bazaar article from 1904 in which the servants whirled at a place called Harbor Hill with amazing photos and descriptions of everything. It's kind of goopy. You know how 1904 magazine, ladies' magazines wrote, but it's amazing to see the, the photographs, I think, in context. It's really neat. So I will leave you with that. Baby, your house get dirty, and it need cleaning all the time. Baby, your house get dirty, and it need cleaning all the time. Yeah, you could pick up your own house, baby, and see how much dirt you might find. Gilded Age heiresses, we call them buccaneers, dollar princesses. They were muddied American brides who brought an influx of cash with them to draining aristocratic coffers and received titles beyond misses. In return, they became ladies and duchesses. So we'll get back into our TARDIS and go back to 2011, the House of Wood, and our discussion of Gilded Age heiresses.
And here's your 30-second summary. Titled nobility in England were running low on funds. Wealthy American women on the fringe of society, unable to make the leap to the next level, took a leap of another kind across the pond to charm and wed. The nobility got cash, the women got titles, and they all lived happily ever after. No, not really. The end. So, old New York was not kind to these upstart bouncers, no matter how much money they had. And um, some mamas, rather than be content with second tier and being left out of all the important newspaper articles, mm-hmm. etc., um, reading about Miss Disaster in the paper, they a few brave souls headed across the pond to try the waters in Paris. But, unfortunately, the Prussian army, these are my people. <laughs> Sorry about that. They were having a grand old time in Paris, though. We talked about how... Um, the American upper class had this love affair with mm-hmm. with France and all right. things French, and all the menus were written in French, etc. So Paris seemed like the natural place to go. But the Prussian army had other ideas. They uh, were invading Paris in 1870, and so the ladies vamoosed. They got, yeah. They went. As an American might say, <laughs> during the time of the Wild Wild West, That's right. they vamoosed over to London. Nothing kills a party more than guns. <laughs> yeah, they wore. So they cruised to London, which was actually their second choice, but it turned mm-hmm. out for the best, didn't it? Yes, it sure did. Because they were actually welcomed with open arms in London. Yeah, the people of London didn't snub them. No, not at all. The people of London came to their parties. That's right. They were breath of fresh air. They invited them. What a change from New York, really. Mm -hmm. Night and day. Yeah. Hooray. Finally. <laughs> now, the guy that smoothed their way for them has to be said by his approval and basically his really kind of obsession. Yeah. Them, oh, yeah. I would was, say that. Yeah. Albert Edward, the Prince of Wales, um, Queen Victoria's oldest son. Mm-hmm. He loved his American women. I he mean, did. when I say loved, I mean, yeah. Well, here's the thing. His, a little background on him. His mother, Queen Victoria, you know her reputation. Yeah. <laughs> she was very um, stern and very dour and frankly did not give him anything official to do. He would have liked to be involved, but as that wasn't available to him, you know what the man with a lot of money and nothing to do turns into a playboy kind of guy. He takes up the party people, kind of get attracted to him, and they're called the Marlboro House set. And of course, his mother completely disagrees with everything. This loose morals, these parties, these late nights, all this drinking. She can't have no. it. But he, yeah, that he, doesn't slow him down yeah. at all. And the American women are, they came to party. Well, and the Marble House set liked novelty. So the mm-hmm. Americans are very novel. And also, they also liked other people to pay some of the cost. Because it could get expensive right. to keep the prince entertained. Mm-hmm. You need a mm-hmm. lot of money. He's loved American people. He came to the United States, to New York City in 1861. There's some deference in Britain to the prince. Yeah. There's a little formality. Right. He was mobbed like Justin Bieber <laughs> at a mall right. <laughs> when he came to New York. God, how could you not love that? Yeah, Especially then, if you have a personality like he does. He was mobbed to such yeah. an extent that the dance floor broke. <laughs> you know, yep. 4,000 people came, 1,000 people crashed, the dance floor broke, and the ladies would not stop no. talking to him. So he has really felt a, a fondness yeah. for the ladies. Ever so now that. they're coming onto his turf. And American, with their money. Yes. And American girls are different from British girls. Very different. Because the British girls are, up until their debut, they are kept very cloistered almost is a good word. They're educated and they're kept at home and they don't go out, especially unchaperoned. And they don't dress like the American girls were dressing. They don't have the morals of the American girls. They don't have the free thinking of the American girls. Well, it's not that they don't have the free thinking. It's that they are sheltered from even right. reading anything yes. questionable. Okay, yeah. 
they're taught to be very demure and shy in company. They're mm-hmm. they're taught to look down, look at the ground and blink the eyes when talking to older men or men of rank or whatever. Well, American girls were brought up to you're an important person in your own right. Mm-hmm. You go up and shake his hand or whatever. And so for a young woman to come shake your hand, it's like, what? <laughs> Looking yeah. right in the yeah. eye and nice to meet you, yeah. you know. The free manners. So it's not that the morals were so mm-hmm. different. Because mamas are the same all over in that regard, I think. But yeah, English girls did not have the clothes that the American girls had. Because, you know, daddies in America were very indulgent with mm-hmm. the clothes and the money. Especially with this particular social group. Yeah. yeah. And, but in Britain... With primogeniture being as it was, and as you recall, that means all the dough goes to the oldest boy. Mm -hmm. There was not a lot of money left over for putting worth dresses on the backs of the seventh daughter or whatever. The whole economic situation in the country is starting to change. It's it was a country was agricultural up till this point, and a lot of the titled nobility had property that they they leased out to tenants, and that's where they got their money. The economy is changing because the country is becoming more industrialized. There isn't the money to filter down to that seventh daughter, even if they would be so inclined to do so. So let's borrow a term from Edith Wharton and call these first three ladies that went over and married into the nobility the Buccaneers. We're going to talk about Jenny Jerome, Consuelo Isnaga, and Minnie Stevens. Let's start with Jenny Jerome. Yes, let's start with Jenny Jerome. Um, she's born in in New York. Her father is is very wealthy. He is. He's very handsome. <laughs> He is a part owner of the New York Times. He is a stock speculator. At one point, they called him the King of Wall Street. He's very into horse racing. And he's actually a sailing buddy of our old friend, William K. Vanderbilt. The thing is, though, that their dad's fondness for opera singers kind of kind of put the kibosh on social advancement for mm-hmm. his wife and daughters. Because, honestly, old boy did not make a secret of it. No, not at all. And actually, there is rumor that, that she was named after Jenny Lynn, the opera singer. And there's no... Connection. There's no actual real connection to that, but it's a nice little bit. Well, so Clara, the mom, hauled all the girls to Paris, and she wrote a note to her husband saying, you can visit as often as you like and pay the bills. That's right. <laughs> Let's go to Paris. Have a good time with Come these on, girls. opera dancers, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And he did a very fine job of paying the bills. For a while, he did. Yeah. Anyway, he was um, obviously summoned back when, when my people came to take over, installed <laughs> them in a fabulous suite in a hotel, and then... Went back to New York. <laughs> Goodbye. He has a life back there. No, but he came when he was called. They needed him. He came. Then yeah, he's out of there. Right. He's got stuff to do with regard to yachting and horse racing and <laughs> fraternizing. <laughs> so at 19, Jenny is, you know, out. Obviously, we're out by 19. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's at a dance for the Prince of Wales. And she was introduced to Lord Randolph Churchill. Now, he's the second son of a duke. And you and I know that the second son... Nope. There's no real nothing. point to marrying a second son. Yeah. No. If you're after a title, because he's not getting one. I mean, he's got Lord. So he's got Lord. He's, you know. Yes, his title. He's Lord Randolph Spencer Churchill. So if you like the slick-haired, mustachioed, kind of little skinny dude, I guess you'd find him rock star handsome, but yeah. I, I don't know. He well, must have had some kind of charm. He must have had some charm, because they hit it off rather quickly. She had quite a few suitors around her, so... He obviously stood out. In three days after they met, he proposed, and she accepted. Three days. Well, now, here's the thing. She accepted during that time period. That was not, did you discuss this with your elders? No. You don't just accept a proposal of marriage without a family conference. No. But she did. And back in that time, a lot of the gentlemen wouldn't even talk to the women. First, they'd go to their mothers. Yeah. And ask if this is an avenue that they could pursue. 
but not our no. dude Randolph. Yeah, and I will say I'm all for, you know, I'm all for true love because honestly, my husband and I met and married within an exceedingly short period As of time. As did my husband and I. So it is possible that they just fell in love and that's completely possible. We believe in it. Okay, but her parents are like, no way, no way. He does not have a title. He's not going to go to title. This is ridiculous. Is He's a fortune hunter. Right. And, his, yeah. And yeah. his parents were like, no way. Who is this person? Her father is this absurd. They Googled him. Okay, no, not really. <laughs> well, they Googled <laughs> at the time of their the time, day. Yeah. They sent an investigator it, over right. to nose around, really. They they did. And um, you know who saved the bacon? The Prince of Wales. Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales loved Jenny Jerome, and, and he thought they suited pretty well, um, the two of them. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew them both, obviously. Right. And so his family was grumpy because, you know, once royalty gets involved, you can't just go, nah. Yeah. And so they set <laughs> what they considered to be an impossible condition. That's right. He had to have achieved a seat in Parliament. Yeah. So they're like, all right, then. Yeah. Feel free to marry your Wild West American. <laughs> but, but first, you must get a seat in the House of Commons. Promptly. Yeah. All of the factors coalesced. <laughs> and he got a seat in the House of Commons. Yeah. It was just like... Oh. One after the other, every factor that needed to happen, Parliament was dissolved. He stood mm-hmm. for, you know, in Woodstock, he stood for um, election, and almost immediately he did it. And so we thought we were on the right track. Yes. We're going to get married. Yes. Okay, but then there was another setback, financial <laughs> setback. Mr. Jerome gave $50,000. Which in? Well, and which in modern money, yes. I want to say is like... Six hundred and sixty thousand, somewhere mm-hmm. around there, which is pretty respectable, but nothing compared to later no. ones. Oh, just wait for those numbers later. Yeah. But he kept some back. He kept some back, and he said, "This is just for Jenny mm-hmm. alone. Right. This is not to be touched by my son-in-law. This is for my daughter." Okay. All Hades broke loose because British women did not. Yeah. Once they got married, all their property became their husbands, and there was a great social conflict right there. And so it almost fell apart again. <laughs> but I finally, it was. I guess finally everyone just crumbled under the pressure of the love, the lovers. And they must have had some type of attraction if they jumped through these hoops. Yeah. So, and it, it took about a year. Yeah. And so they had a very quiet wedding um, compared to what comes later. They married at the British Embassy in Paris. And she became Lady Churchill. She became Lady Churchill. Mm-hmm. And then eight months later, she yeah. became Mama Churchill. That's right. <laughs> to mm. a full term baby. <laughs> so do the math. That's all we're saying. But that baby became famous later because that baby, half American, did you know? Yes. Winston Churchill. That's right. The stoic leader of Britain during World War II is half American. Half American. Cool. So we're going to do a mini cast entirely on Jenny Jerome Churchill. We think there's so much going on after this to warrant. So if they had such, such excitement just to get to the altar... So we'll talk about her a lot more in a mini-cast. So let's move on to the second buccaneer, Consuelo is Naga. Consuelo is Naga. Now, the, the interesting last name is her father is Cuban. Right. And she is Southern. She's from Louisiana. She's the daughter of a sugar plantation owner, um, but very wealthy. She sounds totally fun. I know. She does, doesn't she? Of all the people in this story, I think I'd want to hang out with her. I, I do agree. I, I do agree. And you know who hung out with her? <laughs> Alva, Alva Vanderbilt, they were childhood friends. Yeah, at 10 and 13, they used to kind of run crazy mm-hmm. together. 
And it's funny, in Edith Wharton's The Buccaneers, the characters that are supposed to represent these people, they take up smoking at a young age while sitting on a fence, which is like, young ladies do not sit on a fence, A, and then they do not smoke, B. And so it's funny, because I think that came straight from Consuelo. It's not oh, a, I'm sure it did. And she used to have this funny thing of grabbing a hold of a banjo and just singing minstrel songs. That'd be fun. Dancing around, not caring what people thought too much, and I think she sounds awesome. Now, she reminds me, if you've seen the movie Marie Antoinette, the red-haired friend of Marie Antoinette, the Duchess of Polignac. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think you've got a good picture of Consuelo, although she was blonde, but otherwise, very similar naughtiness. Mm-hmm. Um, she met Viscount Mandeville at a resort called Saratoga, home of the potato chip, by the way. The things you know and share with us. <laughs> Well, home of horse racing horse and the potato chip. Because we all think horse racing, but not Beckett. Yeah. Well, I'm married to a chef. So. I know, that's right. So I think that men, I don't know, I keep thinking that men marry their mothers. His mother, who was a German princess, used to dance on tables. So I'm so just he thinking. He probably saw a lot of the qualities that were in his mm-hmm. mom. And, and she had the nerve to object because of the banjo playing, etc. I was like, girl, uh-huh. you need to get a mirror. <laughs> a turn. Yeah. His, so his mother was not American, but I just think, I think he saw a lot of Yeah, the qualities mama. that she possessed. Oh, yeah. I'm going to agree. <laughs> so unlike Jenny Jerome's husband, Consuelo's is an oldest son. And mm-hmm. he will inherit. Mm-hmm. So now she's the future Duchess of Manchester upon her wedding. That's a great catch because at the time, at the time, there were only 27 dukes in Britain. This was a big quarry to be catching. Mm -hmm. And what are the chances that when you're of marriageable age, one of these is going to come vacant, these positions? So so she had a traffic-stopping, huge, elaborate wedding, unlike Jenny Jerome. And like Jenny, who snuck off to the British. Yeah, they threw it all out there. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was a huge deal. So we love her, and her name goes throughout aristocracy from now on, Consuelo. Consuelo. Which you, yeah, of all the names. I know, and we're going to discuss another Consuelo later, so maybe this Consuelo will be Consuelo one. (laughs) We're so used to Mary, Mary, Mary. Henry, 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 Henry. John, 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 John. And now we've got Consuelo. Consuelo. Interesting. Uh, The third buccaneer is Minnie Stevens. Now, her mom was just flat out too rough for New York society. She tried, man. Did she, (laughs) she get her little battering ram out and assault openly? And everyone was just like... Oh, no. You wanted no part of that. I want no part of you. She's almost kind of a joke. She had this big red wig, and she's like a wife of a hotelier, although they called him a hotel keeper, you know. (laughs) And there was, um, there were rumors. Who would they be? Oh, you know. Our friends. The 400. The 400, yeah. So, um... What's funny about that is the 400 started rumors about her that she'd been a chambermaid in the hotel. Mm-hmm. Well, she was actually a grocer's daughter, perfectly respectable, although certainly not elevated. But she was no. not a chambermaid in her husband's hotel. No. But that's, you know, whatever. <laughs> so Mama had this big goal in mind. Revenge. She wanted to show the Astors, oh, oh, ho, is this how it goes? So she goes... She wanted to pull off a coup is what she did. So she went and unfortunately was just as aggressive in Europe. (laughs) So she paraded Minnie around um, and then amped up her monetary... um, Her wealth. Her wealth. She lied about how much she was worth. Yeah. uh, Minnie was very pretty and proposals did start coming almost immediately, but Mama turned them all down as not grand enough. A lot of continental titles, unlike England in in Paris, you can have a whole bunch of princes of whatever. Right. Like, all the sons get that title. It's not as valuable as a country with primogeniture where there's one right. that gets the title. So she she was like, that's kind of unreliable. I can't, you know, 
we're not going to go there. And so she held out and held out and held out, but finally agreed to the French Duc de Guiche, was accepted. And then he sent a man to investigate the finances, and he publicly exposed their fraud. That was really embarrassing. And so by this time, her daughter was 25, and by the standards of the time, she's getting up there. Yeah. You she's going to have to marry her off. The term is on the shelf. Yeah. She's on the shelf. She's on the shelf. Which seems pretty unfortunate. 25 is so young. But... To us. So she fell back on a sure thing who did not have a title, um, except for a lord. He was only a grandson of someone who had a title. Right. So pff, he's not going to get a title. <laughs> but the Prince of Wales called on Mrs. Stevens to give his approval. He loved Minnie Stevens. All these women were very charming. Yeah. And he loved her. So chew on that, Mrs. Astor. <laughs> the Prince of Wales was willing to come to Mrs. Stevens' house where you did not want to go. That's so fun. I think that was enough of a smack. Yeah. Although you didn't get the grand title, you get the prince. You got the prince drinking show. out of your teacups. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. Yes. Very so good. these three ladies were the vanguard of this wave that overtook all of Europe during the next couple decades. That's true. These are the three. So let's take a little break, and when we come back, we will talk about the second wave. are back so here we are the women are going to england to get their titles now what are their titles we're talking about the peerage that's what they're going after and these are titles that are handed down from generation to generation but only to the first son this is what they're going after this is what they're paying for this is why they're called dollar princesses although quite honestly there's no princesses really yeah not yeah. until you get to france and, no and this, yeah <laughs> no but the biggest catch of all would be a duke they want to get the dukes because then they will be duchesses. At the time, there's only 27 of those. There's mm -hmm. more now because of all of Queen Elizabeth's sons mm -hmm. and Prince William's and now a new one. So there's more now, but at the time there were only 27. 27. That's it. That's all there was. After that, we have the Marquess, and you become a Marchioness. Or Marquess, if you Marquess. Marquess. After that, you would be an Earl. An Earl is a good catch as well. Yeah, yeah. Countess Graham sounds good. Countess, Countess Graham. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Actually, Graham really works well, much more so than my last name. <laughs> <laughs> then you have your Viscounts. I mean, any of these are good to get. This is what they're after. So, of course, they obviously want the better ones, but whatever. Then you have a Baron, and you could become a Baroness. And then you have your Sirs. Those are Baronets and Knights. Now, the Knight is based on your life, so you can get that title. Yeah. A man could. So the is. corresponding, if you are the one receiving the title, you would be a dame. Right. But they, the wives of knights throughout, have used to be called dames, but they kind of wanted to be called ladies. So now they're ladies. So if your husband is, you know, Sir Graham, you are now mm -hmm. lady. Lady. Yeah, a lot, there's a lot of ladies out there. There's a lot of ladies. <laughs> I think it's very interesting because we all want to get our knight in shining armor, and then knight is like the lowest thing that these ladies were after. <laughs> but you know what? Here's the thing about knights. The knights, at least, are by merit. Right. So you've got somebody... Has done something really good for the country. So... That's true. And who has to have caught the attention of the king or queen mm -hmm. to get that in the first place. So perhaps for quality of life issues, <laughs> if you're the one having all the money, right. maybe you do want to serve. Yeah. Anyway, so that's what they were after. Now, Alpha Vanderbilt, back in the United States, is intimately connected with Consuelo Isnaga, who is now the Duchess of Manchester. Right. In 
fact, that famous ball where she flipped over Mrs. Astor into visiting her, mm -hmm. that was in honor of her friend, who New York society did not give five cents for when she was in the United States. But now that she's a duchess of something... And she has her title, they all wanted to see her, and they sure... Yeah. Surely did, including Mrs. Astor. <laughs> so newspaper accounts of this ball made Europe very fashionable indeed. Mm -hmm. And the idea kind of grew. Hey, take your daughters to London. Take your daughters to London. It's take your daughters to London year. Yeah, exactly. Now, simultaneously, conditions on the husband's side were kind of ripe for this to happen, too. This is another case of things coming together mm -hmm. at the right time. So for centuries... Land equaled wealth. Vast estates could support the nobility and their extravagant lifestyles, but there was a slide in income about now. So imported food was coming in cheaper, especially American wheat, ironically enough. So mm -hmm. the Americans were coming in to dilute the marriage pool and they diluted the food pool too. <laughs> and also industrialization kind of pulled tenants away. So why work your honey off on this farm 24 hours a day and when you could be your own man in a factory for 12 hours a day, mm -hmm. which sounds equally sucky to me, but seemed like an improvement to those Step men. up, sure. Yeah. So the income shrank, and they had to reduce the rents because the farmers couldn't afford to pay these mm -hmm. exorbitant, you know, duties to their lords anymore. And so incomes were shrinking, and a lot of these peers were stuck with, like, fixed costs. The house just costs X to run. That's End right. And we're not talking little houses. Mm -hmm. We're talking those the big mansions and the dot the countryside. So, yes, primogeniture gave all the property to the oldest son, yes, mm -hmm. but you also got all the debts. <laughs> yeah, do you want it? <laughs> so you may not want it. And the younger sons and the daughters were really in a bad way. Allowances were really reduced or cut off mm -hmm. in some cases. And at least the younger sons could go pursue some activities or whatever. But the daughters, I mean, these English girls do not have the weaponry in the marriage market that these no. new Americans have coming no. over. So they couldn't work. That's so middle class. So marrying for money, if you were not too obvious about it, mm -hmm. seemed like the way to go. Now enter the Americans into this ripe field for conquest. And they cash. To we love, Jeannie Chamberlain of Ohio. Gasp, Ohio. Yeah, which at the time is, you know, that's frontierish. <laughs> It's, it's not you certainly know. not your more refined cities. So Gail McCall, in one of my favorite books that I'll talk about later, referred to these as self-made girls. And here's why. They didn't have this establishment. They didn't have these mothers that knew the deal. They didn't have anybody to contact to help them. Mm -hmm. They kind of did this on their own by the force of their own personality. So Jeannie Chamberlain of Ohio arrived on the scene and got her photograph taken all over the place. This was the era of the professional beauty, where you would buy prints of fabulously attractive women. women. Perfectly respectable. Now this you just download them for free, but yeah. back then they were they were for sale in shops. And her father upped, uh, unwittingly, uh, her father upped her profile by threatening to prosecute any <laughs> store that was showing her picture for sale. Which, of course, made the... The picture hotter, more modernity, and that man put more worth dresses <laughs> on his daughter's back. I don't care how snooty you are. If a person's going to come in, the average buy of a British woman was maybe three, and they'd stretch it all season. Mm -hmm. This girl bought eighty. She wants you to design eighty dresses for her. Are you going to drop everything? Yes, yes, you are. You are. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and her picture is being bought by people. Yeah, yeah. but advertising. She's paying worth to advertise. Yes, for worth. Yes, definitely. Inevitably, she caught the prince's eye. Uh oh. You say, uh oh. No, no. no. We've heard that before, but no yeah. way. This is not how that goes. Her parents were always around. Her parents were always there, and they were completely respectable-ish, mm -hmm. but they 
had no idea what was going on. They're just kind of trailing around after her like, this is really nice, dear. They have no idea. They refer to the prince as a really nice man. They have have no idea. (laughs) She is super duper flirty, but Mm. utterly and really unattainable. And so what did the prince do? He trotted around after her like a dog all over Europe. To the point where his wife called her Miss Chamber Potts. Miss Chamber Potts. Yeah. And she called him, brace yourself for this, Prince Tom Tom and Jumbo. The boy was a little bit hefty. Yeah, yeah, a little. But everyone invited her everywhere. She eventually married one of the prince's really close friends, who was later knighted. So she became a lady without one stain on her reputation, except for perhaps the Chamber Potts. Yeah, that's right. Which was unfortunate. (laughs) So she made it all on her own. On her own. Well, on her own with... Daddy's money. Daddy's money. Dressing her. But he was perfectly willing to... He was oh, happy. You know, whatever. And he was, was there the whole time. Yeah. She didn't leave him at home like everyone else did. So Mary Leiter is another meteoric rise here. Meteoric rise. Her dad was a partner in a little store in Chicago called Marshall Fields. You may have heard of it. Yeah. They moved to Washington, and she became best friends with the president's young wife. So President Cleveland's fashionable wife was her best friend. Mm-hmm. That's a good best friend. Yeah, yeah. And so she did um, appear in pa- the list of patriarchs balls as one of those special guests you can invite from out of town. So she's, you know, she's been there, um, you know, on the, the circle. F- on the fringes a little. Yeah. But I will tell you, everyone in Newport loves her. And really, it was based on her own merit and her own skill at meeting people. She was very good at conversation and charm. And she wasn't nearly as flirtati as, you know, old girl Chamberlain was. She, <laughs> but one key letter of introduction kind of tipped all these things. She went to this party, this party, this party, this party, and got her to the right party. And the prince saw her in her fabulous Worth gown. He has a weakness, I think. I, I think so. You dress him up in a Worth gown and yeah. Wales is all over him. And the prince selected her to open a ball with, and her career was made right then. But she fell in love. She fell in love with this man named George George Curzon, who's an eldest son of a baron. He seemed like Indiana Jones. I know. I was going to say, you know, this is not a bad thing because he was very charismatic and he did have this lifestyle that was very serious almost. Well, he was super intelligent. I guess he had poor health as a child. So unlike almost everyone else in the aristocracy, he actually studied at school. (laughs) So that was good. Um, He was ambitious. He was an explorer. Mm -hmm. He was a daredevil. He went places in the interior of Asia that no one had no white man had seen, etc. It sounds very Indiana Jones to me. Dashing. Yes. So he saw her first during that very dance with the prince and thought, well, that's the least attractive species of human possible, an American. Okay, that's not good. She loved her some George Curzon and she was so obsessed (laughs) that she, the necklace she was wearing that day, this sounds so stalkery, I'm telling you what, I would run (laughs) far away too, George Curzon. (laughs) She had a pearl from her necklace made into a tie pin and sent to him. Hello, they've never even talked. That's or, bold. That is super bold. And, of course, you know, what does he do? He kind of strings her along for three years. I mean, they she would write, 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 write. And sometimes he would pass through where she was and didn't even bother to see her. So he wanted to be the expert of all of Asia. He wanted to be famous for that. He wanted to be indispensable to the king. And so he's like, oof, I need some... I need some cash. I need some cash. Hmm. Where so he asked, you get some cash yeah. out this time? Well, so he asked her to marry him, and then immediately, like, did he change his mind? Did he go, oh, crap, what did I just do? And he immediately told her to keep his secret. <laughs> it's just buyer's remorse. He does not sound like a good guy right now, honestly. No. And even worse, it took two more years for him. All This whole time, so she's keeping a secret. She's 
denying all these suitors. All these Her other parents people are probably that, like, yeah, what why is are going you on? not getting married? Why it's are we taking here? so long? So he must have been some kind of charming man or there's the pheromone thing. I just don't know. He, he must have smelled good or something. I don't know. But so he obviously married her for her money. But she did truly love him for yes. some reason. So I don't know that she was the loser. But then he spent the next 10 years being a workaholic. Mary Leiter was so sad at her marital fate. Her parents were so worried about her. They tag team visited her for a long time. She used to write these <laughs> sad letters about um, she would hug the chairs her mother had sat in and cry because she missed her parents so much. Aww. I, 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 man, I'm kind of not liking George Curzon. I'm telling you what. But finally, at last, he was named the Viceroy of India. So that's his ambition fulfilled. <laughs> and he slowly, where have you been, George Curzon, started to wake up to the fact that he had a valuable, intelligent, caring, kind person. And he fell in love with her after this long of time. That's a great story. Finally, he loved her back. Her self-confidence returned immediately. She was totally cherished, totally loved. Yeah, I can't help being angry at him for taking her devotion for granted for so long. No, but it makes a better story arc. So she was the vicerain, which means she was the second most high woman in the country only after the queen. So that's the highest position an American has had Mm -hmm. or will ever have. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, because there's no more vice reigns. Right. I will tell you, she died early. She died very early. And the tomb, I'll have to put a picture of her tomb, is so touching. It is elaborate and beautiful. And her her epitaph on there is, she was adored in three continents by her dearest will be forever unforgotten. That's a great story. Yeah. So You just love these Gilded Age heiresses. I just, I just love, love your it. enthusiasm for this and... It's just the stories. It seems like it just seems like a mere exchange of money for title, but there's yeah, so many different permutations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's the second wave, and let's take a little break, and we will talk about the third wave. We're back. So, the Buccaneers' husbands have blown through their money already. What the heck? It's expensive upkeeping those castles. I guess. And their American wives are starting to see this really lucrative position as uh, introducers. Mm -hmm. So good. Good for that. But the money's getting bigger. Honestly, the money's getting bigger. The industrialist's wealth has completely overshadowed New York's wealth. For example, Consuelo is Nega's dowry. I would consider this respectable. Thirty-three million in today's money. But Mary Leiter's was two hundred and forty-seven million. Isn't that something? That is amazing. The numbers boggle your mind. They boggle your mind. So, did that get the attention of British noblemen? Yes, it did. And they began coming to America to wife hunt. (laughs) What a turn of events that is! Yeah, the women don't have to go to England any longer. They can stay home and have the parade in front of them. Well, no. So, where did they often go? To Newport, Rhode Island. I lived right by Newport. I, I love Newport. Yeah. <laughs> I still have hydrangeas outside just because of that. So it was a national hub of wealth. Honestly, that was kind of the resort where everyone came from all over the place. There were Southerners. There were people from Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. from everywhere. So heiresses of all kinds could be found there for your viewing pleasure, this British man. <laughs> it's like a heiress store. It is. Heiresses are us. <laughs> so the daughters, though, at this point of the denizens of Newport were all well-educated, well-trained, 
They were very confident. They'd been brought up to be comfortable with this level of ostentation. We'll have to show you pictures of the level of ostentation. They were completely comfortable with immense fortunes, not awed too much by these men, these dukes or whatever. I have to say, Alva Vanderbilt, right about now, said, I know of no profession of any trade that women are working on today as taxing on mental resources than being a leader of society. <laughs> wow. Factory workers might disagree with Yeah, that. just a little bit. And her own servants, perhaps? Yeah, they might have. Uh, yeah, I don't think I would like to have worked for Alva. Yeah. So, yeah, that gives you a little viewpoint into her personality and the most famous heiress of all. Consuelo Vanderbilt. Her wedding was so similar to that recent one of William and Kate. It's, it's, it's astonishing to me that she wasn't, well, she was royalty. She was American royalty, really. Mm -hmm. So Alva has one daughter. That's it. To put all of her knowledge and wisdom and really, quite frankly, to control into the type of woman that Alva thinks she should be. Consuelo's opinion and personality be damned <laughs> because Alva Mama knows best. So she, again, was really besties with Consuelo One, and Consuelo One had the title, and Alva thought that was pretty special. So Alva Mama has her one daughter that she raises and decides that, that Consuelo is going to get a title, and that's it. So as a teenager, Consuelo is getting ready to, she's on the market. And Alva thinks that a title is really all that, that will do for her daughter. You know, though, she drilled and schooled this girl yes. to be basically a duchess since birth. Mm -hmm. She used to have to wear this iron brace all day to keep her head. I mean, like, sit up as straight as you can and look straight ahead. Like, there's a big old iron rod behind. Now try to write a letter. <laughs> Go to the bathroom. I, go to the, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she was she was not a gentle mama. No, she was heavily educated, Consuelo, too. I will mm -hmm. say she took and passed oh. the Oxford and Cambridge exams at 17. That's amazing. Yes. But no way was she going to be allowed to go to college. No, no, no. But she had it. Mm -hmm. if, if you have the education, how, how you use it is up to you. So I think Consuelo knew what was happening to her because she said of her mother, it was her wish to produce me as a finished specimen framed in a perfect setting. And she was beautiful. She was, people would stop to stare at her. But I think her and spirit was, was all crushed. I do. She was not her mother's daughter at all. She, her personality was different. Consuelo was very, very kind. I want to say timid, actually. But, you know, you have a domineering mother like that controlling you your whole life. You really don't get to the place where you can make decisions very well on your own because you think all your decisions are wrong. So there's many suitors that would like to have the hand of our Consuelo. But, of course, Mama doesn't allow any of them. And at one point, Consuelo actually has a relationship with and becomes engaged secretly to one Winthrop Rutherford. And Mama doesn't want any part of this. You know, it's funny. He's an old New York Stuyvesant, which is hilarious, because, you know, if Consuelo had been born even 15 years ago, mm -hmm. this would have been like, hallelujah. I, exactly. It would have been her aunt, Alva's entree, but at this point. But now there's bigger fish yep. to fry. Yep. <laughs> Alva's thinking globally. <laughs> <laughs> so she is, um, gets in touch with, and the, like you had talked about, these women that have got their titles and the, the coffers are running a little low. There's a little, there's some financial gain for them. 
with Minnie Stevens, who is now Lady Paget, And she is putting her polite hand to the side and taking funds to make introductions. And that is exactly what happens. And Lady Paget introduces our girl Consuelo to Charles Spencer Churchill, the ninth Duke of Marlborough. It's funny because at her dinner party, she sat the Duke of Marlborough on one side of her mm-hmm. and Consuelo on the other side of her at the head of the table. And that was as not subtle as no. it could possibly be. No, not at all. It was not a quiet demeanor. It's like, let me present your title and yeah. here's your money. That's right. Right here. Would you like some butter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And after that dinner party, even though they had only met once, the rumors began to circulate that they were indeed engaged. And, hmm, I wonder who would be feeding information like that to the press. Who, who, who? Yeah, Mom. Isn't that funny? <laughs> but the Duke did invite the Vanderbilt ladies to Blenheim Palace. Yes. A little trivial fact about Blenheim Palace. Yeah, what? It was so large that it took a man all year to wash the outside of the windows. <laughs> he started at the front and went all the way around, and a year had passed, and he went around again. The January windows. And the so that's windows. how big. So when Alva got there, she felt smug that her house, Marble House, so mm-hmm. she meant, was made of finer things than Blenheim Palace, which is hilarious to me. Because Blenheim had faux-painted mm-hmm. marble. Well, Alva had the rarest marble in the world. Of course. Alva was quite the house designer. So Consuelo did fit in well, at the very least. If yeah. not more so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. More, yeah. Consuelo was more than fit for this man's house. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Okay, so they're back in Newport after the grand visit, and Consuelo at a ball sneaked a dance with her love, William Rutherford, and it became a freaking catfight. It, it was a mother-daughter brawl to end all brawls. There was screaming and threats and weeping and lies. Like, he can't have children. He's sleeping with mm-hmm. a married woman I know. Mm-hmm. He just wants your money. Alva was pulling out all of her controlling tricks, every single one of them at this. Because at this point, Consuelo, this was like her last ditch. She said, I am not marrying the Duke. And Alva's like, yeah, you are. And this is why. And there's utter silent treatment Mm -hmm. for a really long time. Yeah. Alva goes to her room and won't overcome. She gives a silent treatment to Consuelo. And her friends are coming to talk to Consuelo and say, oh, your mother is. It pulls out the granddaddy of all tricks. It's your mother's health. She will have a heart attack if this happens. Do you want to kill your mother? Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, and I've Whoa. often wondered how people made their daughters marry people. Mm-hmm. And now I get, okay, now I get a little bit of a hmm, picture. Mm-hmm. And that's abuse, evidently. Yeah, abuse. that's what it is. Not good. Yeah. So the Duke kept to himself all summer, and everyone was expecting the announcement any day. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had a ball and everything. Part of the motivation behind Alva's trying to hurry up this whole ceremony is that she's getting divorced, <laughs> which is not allowed in society. And she would like to deflect some of the negative criticism that she's getting because of that and say, well, it doesn't matter because my daughter is marrying a duke. Let's talk about that instead of me divorcing. Yeah. <laughs> and so he finally, in September of that year, he proposed in the Gothic room, which is really dark and heavy. And Consuelo wrote in her memoir, The Glitter and the Gold, which you should pick up. Yeah. She wrote that that room is propitious for sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. It was very uneventful. He proposed and she ran upstairs and mom had already had the message leaked out to the paper. It's not even up for discussion at this point, Mm-mm. Consuelo. It's done deal. And the papers went crazy with this obviously arranged marriage. You know, before there's always been this element of... If not love, at least, you know, the girl wanted this and Mm -hmm. was trying for this. And a 
and sometimes there was love too, and that was acceptable. It's the American way. Go for the gold, right. girl. But this right. one was so not according to the taste of America at the time. No. I mean, Alva was painted as a, this dragon or this witch, and Consuela was like Little Red Riding Hood, and Duke was the wolf. <laughs> I mean, cartoons abounded. Well, the Duke had, I mean, he was doing this as a sacrifice for his family. He was, it was honor, you know, to save the family. Yeah. Well, this one cartoon that we'll post by Charles Dana Gibson, the inventor of the Gibson Girl, um, it shows kind of Ooh, we how... we should do Gibson Girls. We should do Gibson Girls. It shows, okay, it shows this teeny tiny little greasy man and a beautiful bride kneeling on at the altar, but they're kneeling on Cupid's coffin, mm-hmm. and the bride's <laughs> hands are chained behind her and held by her mother. So if that's... And it was clearly Consuelo and the Duke, honestly. But it was a big deal. Even though Consuelo was being dragged to the altar, Mm -hmm. that wedding was a ginormous deal. Every detail of that wedding was leaked to the newspapers. What kind of gold was on her garters? Her lingerie was drawn for the newspaper. Isn't that lovely? Just what you want. This is what I'm talking about. It coming back to William and Kate. Very much so. The wedding is held in 1895 at um, St. Thomas Episcopal Church in New York City, and it is ginormous. And the streets are lined with people wanting to catch a glimpse of the bride. Streets are blocked off for yeah. traffic, yeah. And then, and yeah, people. lining mm-hmm. the streets. The the invited guests are have to go through throngs of people to get in. All the police departments are all at the wedding for crowd control. And her dad, who was on the outs with her mom at the time, was told to show up bring Consuelo to the church, walk her down the aisle, and get out. That was it, yeah. That was his role. But he obeyed. Man, he obeyed. Well, he probably didn't want to be part of this whole, I mean, leading his daughter to the lion. To slaughter. Yeah, really. Well, I feel really bad for Consuelo. She was left alone all morning with just her maid to dress her. She was all alone in the morning. Alva had to be seen. (sighs) Ah. Jeez. So all the people are gathered. And they're waiting. They're waiting. And Alva arrives. And they're waiting. And she's standing there prim and proper, and they're waiting. And they're waiting. And, and now Alva's getting a little nervous. So 20 minutes seems like forever, doesn't it? Yeah. And something needed to start, and it's 20 minutes later. And this will even make you sadder. You know why Consuelo was late? Don't tell. Because she'd been crying all night, mm-hmm. and her eyes were puffy. And she was trying to sponge her eyes. Mm-hmm. And she talks She talks about how she was glad she had the veil on, because there was just dark circles under her eyes. But, you know, still, everyone, she was married with cry face, and everyone mm-hmm. could see it. Yeah, it, it, was not a, it was not a joyous. Although, the people that lined the streets wanting to catch a glimpse of the bride, they were pretty excited about it. And like no that. one from his side even bothered to come, no. honestly. It couldn't more clearly be a business arrangement, really. Ugh. Okay. Can't good. cross the ocean for these people. Yeah. So they are wed, and it's uh, it's kind of interesting to me that his nickname and the name he goes by is Sunny. It was short for the subsidiary title that he once Mm -hmm. held named um, Sunderland. When you're growing up and your dad's the Duke, you can't be called the Duke of anything, Mm -hmm. and so you're kind of called by a subsidiary title, and his little nickname was Sunny. Sunny? That sounds so happy. But I don't (laughs) believe that it was a very happy marriage by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -mm. She had her children. She had her heir and her spare. Then she invented that term. We've Mm -hmm. bandied that about a lot, but that's actually attributed to Consuelo Vanderbilt. 
So let's give it up for her on that one. Hooray! Because it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it is a good one. Useful. The marriage was just very gloomy and not happy. It wasn't joyful. I, I think as a mom, I, I mean, for the time, I think she was probably a pretty good mom. Oh, yeah. I think she, yeah. I, she I, loved her children she and did. always wanted them around and everything. And there's a, I do love the portrait. There's a portrait. And again, we'll put this on our website. And if you haven't been to our website, please go because there's a lot, a lot there. It really fills out our discussions, but there's a portrait of Consuelo and her youngest child, and she just looks so blissful. It's like they're playing around, but they sat for a portrait. It's not a photograph. And I think the little joy comes through. The the painter Mm -hmm. got some happiness there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also, it's interesting, there's another picture, you know, Sonny was a lot shorter than his wife, Mm -hmm. and so the painter used some trickery and placed Consuelo on some steps as if, look, the steps are what's making her so much taller. Right. And then she has her oldest son right in the center, holding his father's sword, so he's the important one. Yeah. And then the little spare is off to the side. But the thing about the little spare is, he's so happy in that picture. Mm He's yeah. like, hello, hi, yeah. I'm in the picture. I and know. he looks so happy. I think that if he hadn't been a cheerful child, those portraits would not have portrayed him that way. No, I So I I'm thinking that at least her and her children's life was very I think so. lovely. They stayed together for about 11 years. Divorce was really not allowed unless you could cite adultery or abuse, which um, he, he didn't abuse her. Did he step out on her? Probably. It was yeah, the fashion, probably, you know. But when you do that, you bring scandal to your whole family. And did she want to do that to her kid? So they actually separated for quite a while. They were living separate lives and from 1906 until 1921. We could talk about Consuelo's life for, for a whole episode, but um, let's just suffice it to say that um, once World War I rolled in in England, things kind of changed for her. And after the war, laws were changed. And, and the stigma of divorce was no longer the, as prevalent as it was. And they finally got divorced. So, yay. <laughs> and he actually went off and he, he remarried first. Another American. Another American. They were in correspondence for years, and it it was not a very successful marriage. And he actually left her alone in the castle to live out her days without any money, and she just became a crazy lady. Aren't these (laughs) wonderful husbands that we all want one? I know, but he married first, and then Consuelo finally got to marry for love, and she married Jacques Balsan. He was a nifty guy. He was a... He was buddies with the Wright brothers, and he, I mean, his family had money, so he was from a station in life that was acceptable, but he was just a really neat guy, and they just, they married, she married for love, and, and I feel very happy about that. Yeah, I do too, and actually, they lived in France, and she hung out with Edith Wharton, Henry James, and two degrees of separation back to Helen Keller, Charlie Chaplin. Love that. I know. And it was a very, it wasn't as um, formal of a life as she had in England, but she made it her own. And her and her mom had actually had a split, but they reconciled it at this point once she was divorced and the marriage was actually annulled. And Alva testified that she had forced her daughter. That was actually the way that they got out of it. She told the court and the public that she had forced her daughter to marry against Mm -hmm. her will, and that's what got the marriage annulled, and the children remained legitimate, which was key for the succession of the dukedom. Right. But curiously enough, when Consuelo died, where Mm -hmm. did she want to be buried? England. Yeah. Yeah. So she's buried uh, at the Marlborough family plot. Next to her son. So. But she died in 1964. So we so just missed her. 87. I didn't miss her. You didn't miss her. I missed her. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, no, I did not miss her. But that's a long life. 
You know, the world that she was born into compared to the world of 1964? She may have been the most famous one. I mean, obviously the name Vanderbilt was very fashionable sure. for other reasons, but um, she may be the most famous because of that book she wrote, The Glitter and the Gold, mm-hmm. which um, talks about her life. So basically, once the women, any of these women, had their prize, how was their life after the marriage, exactly? Yeah. Well, basically, let's boil it down to one word, shock. Because it was the custom, if you were a new bride, to go to your husband's country estate. Mm-hmm. And so these girls were brought up the best of everything. I mean, and so here they go. And there's decrepit houses. They're not updated. Often had no indoor plumbing. Mm-hmm. The heating was abysmal. <laughs> and the, they are used to newer homes or modernized homes in America. The best of everything. Mm-hmm. Holy upholstery. Mm-hmm. Dogs walking around inside the house everywhere. It was very obvious to these heiresses why they were there in the first place, I think. So that was probably a little demoralizing. And then also, in America, especially Newport, by the way, women were the bosses of the house. Mm -hmm. Husbands and fathers may not be absent. I mean, obviously they were contributing to their family. Sometimes they were absent, but they were indulgent. Mm -hmm. But in England, a man basically got no advantage by getting married except to have heirs. So, you know, he was the boss of every living thing. On this estate. He was the master. And uh, also the informality of the American home was just dwarfed by the formality. Even the servants in England had had a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. If the American heiress wanted some tea, you didn't ask the butler for some tea. You asked him to tell someone to ask someone to make some tea. (laughs) And then an alternate person would bring it, and then an alternate person would hand it to you. It's really messed up. And it probably took a little bit of time. And probably by the time you got it, it was cold. So you go, I want a tea? <laughs> it's lunchtime. <laughs> and also, the English men were not workaholics the way Daddy had been. Oh, no. American men were either workaholics with work or workaholics with their hobbies. And um, Englishmen had nothing official to do, and they had opinions about things. <laughs> like, they had opinions about wine. They had opinions about food. They had opinions about the dresses their wives wore what (laughs) this was baffling that men would be interested in such things and then also they were expected to run a household well i am (laughs) this is the one thing they were not trained to do Mm -mm. yeah so not good so the servant problem was very big because servants can recognize like a substitute teacher does Mm -hmm. not know what the heck's going on yeah they were they were kind of mocked by the servants of their house and they Mm -hmm. really did and it was a challenge But there was an upside to this, too, because in America, once you were married, you're kind of on the shelf. You're chaperone material, my friends. Mm -hmm. Your your big highlight was that debutante ball in your wedding. And then it was all a flat line. (laughs) But in England... Well, yeah, until you popped out your firstborn son. Yes. Yeah, you could have children. Children are exciting. But in England, unmarried girls were, like, clamped down on. And so once you got married, you had this sphere of influence. You could be involved in your husband's politics, in his business. Mm -hmm. You could travel the world. Jenny Churchill was very involved in in her husband's political career, as well as her son's later in life. And honestly, the custom of their new country was once you had supplied your husband with some boy babies upstairs on the fourth floor with Nanny, you were kind of legitimately free as long as you were discreet to pursue true love. And it was perfectly on the side acceptable. Yeah, I, I am astonished at the amount of bed hopping that goes on. Like the Prince of Wales, he was getting a whole lot of action. 
from Americans, too. Yes, yeah. Yeah. He loved his American women, and they apparently loved him back. And you know what? By the time Edward was crowned king in 1902, the 200 or so American wives of noblemen were renowned for their good works mm-hmm. and their fundraising. Mm-hmm. They were, I mean, you know, they were they were raised by ambitious women and workaholic men, and so they they did lots of stuff. Yeah, idle lives were not part of their breeding. Yeah. No. And they, they were, it was a great contribution to society. It was a very mutual admiration society at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had done such good for the country. So they didn't only just bring the money over. They did bring a lot of good work, too. That was a benefit that they were able to, because in America, it really wasn't the done thing. It was no. kind of money-grubbing and not done. But the wife of the Lord was expected to care for the poor in her husband's charge. And, you know, <laughs> the Duke of Marlborough made fun of Consuelo for reading to poor children and setting up schools and everything, but he really did. He was proud of that, too. His wife accounted herself well in that regard. So the last marriages, and one that we want to talk about is Nancy Astor. Astor? Astor? Where did we hear about the Astors before? So Nancy Langhorn um, was actually a divorcee. Interestingly, but she met the son of Waldorf Astor. Remember him? He was so mad at his aunt, the Mrs. Astor, that he cruised across the pond and became a British nobleman. in England. Yeah. So um, Mr. Viscount Astor had a son, and Nancy Astor married him. Mm-hmm. And she became the very first woman member of Parliament. How about them apples? Yeah, upon the death of his father, um, the new, her husband, Viscount Astor, went into the House of Lords, and his seat was open, and she ran for it, and she won. That's pretty awesome. And so in the paper, I guess I'll just close with this, the very common sentiment of British people at the time was, we were a weaker, more backward, and poorer people before the 70s and 80s brought us the finest of our well-known Anglo-American alliances. The new angles of vision with which they perceived the old world enabled them to leave an imprint on the customs of a society which hitherto had grown up sheltered in its insular traditions. It's a pretty good accolade, I that think. That is a very good accolade from a country that wasn't sure what was happening to them. Yeah. <laughs> now let's talk about media. Let's start with the movies. Okay, well. Uh, I will say there's a recommendation from listener Kathy Ann. Um, there's two, Buccaneers. Once again, we mentioned Edith mm-hmm. Wharton. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot to mention the Edith Wharton connection. Mrs. Stevens, Minnie Stevens' mom, mm-hmm. forbade Edith Wharton from marrying into her family. Mm-hmm. And Edith Wharton paid her back by writing her unfavorably into a book. <laughs> okay. That is the privilege of the author. <laughs> End of story. Okay. So anyway, the Buccaneers, there are two. They're both in 1995. The TV series, American, starring, starring Carla Gugino mm-hmm. and Mira Sorvino. Oh, who? Yeah, among others, is a miniseries available on DVD. And mm-hmm. then there's a Masterpiece Theater PBS version, also a miniseries, um, which received much higher ratings. So yeah. choose your poison. I don't know. <laughs> or both. Have, yeah. a, have an evening. Have a compare and contrast. If you would like to read The Buccaneers, I highly recommend it. Edith yeah. Wharton wrote that book, and it's it was um, an unfinished book. Um, someone had to finish it for her. There are many places that you can go to decode who is who, because they were all based on real characters. Right. That Edith Wharton knew in this period of dollar princesses. It's, that's pretty awesome. And the aforementioned, as to books, I guess, The Glitter and the Gold. Right. By Consuelo Vanderbilt Consuelo. and mm-hmm. Ghostwriter. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, Consuelo and Alva Vanderbilt, The Story of a Daughter and a Mother in the Gilded Age by Amanda Stewart. This is a really good book. It will color in a lot of the things that we talked about today, but it also kind of reads like um, a romance novel in some regards because of all the all the story arcs that are in it. And it's it's pretty fascinating to 
to read all about that. And there's pictures. Both of us would highly recommend that. And now, finally, <laughs> here's a little story behind this. When Beckett first came to me and said, Susan, would you like to be a history chick? She brought me this book, and it's To Marry an English Lord by the author that Beckett was talking about earlier, Gail McCall and Carol McDee Wallace. This is a fantastic book. You should, if anything, you should go out and either borrow it from your library or buy your own copy because if your copy ends up like Beckett's copy, which, a picture of which I will post on our website, <laughs> it is marked up and dog-eared. And this book is so beloved by Beckett. She trusts me with it for a couple of months. I was nervous. <laughs> she said, I had to she, myself. It's, gone. It's, like, it's like your baby. She's like, do you still have my book? Do you still have my book? And yes, yes, I have your book. And, and it returns to you in its original condition. <laughs> yeah. But Becca, if you heard some enthusiasm um, on this particular podcast about the women, it's because Beckett really, really loves this era. And this is really... This is near and dear to her heart, and I'm so glad that we got to finally sit down and talk about it. Yeah, I just love this. And seriously, if you have any money anywhere, this is the very first thing you should spend it on. Yeah. This is how much I love this book. People. It's paperback. It's not going to cost you that much. And it's it's an easy it's an easy read. It's very, oh, it's so clever. It, it's easy to read, well-written, lots of pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is really a terrific book. So it, again, is To Marry an English Lord or How Anglomania Really Got Started. Um, so check that out, and we, of course, will give you uh, a picture of Beckett's book on our website. <laughs> yeah, it's a little embarrassing, but it is really decrepit. It's not embarrassing. You love it. I do love it. It's like those teddy bears that the fur rubs off the uh-huh. nose. <laughs> it's a well-loved book. It might have become real. Like oh, in the Rabbit. Rabbit reference. <laughs> Excellent. Ten points. Well, and I will leave you with another trivial fact. Okay. Since our since our British quote finished off with the British thought nicely. Okay. Here's a trivial fact. Princess Diana, mm-hmm. our beloved Princess Diana, her great-grandmother was an American Yay! named Frances Work. So if not for America, British people would not have Winston Churchill and they would not have Princess Diana. How about that? Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you so much for double time traveling with us, 2011 and the Gilded Age. We'll link up everything that we've talked about in this episode in our show notes at thehistorychicks.com. If you haven't visited there, I'm not quite sure why. Not only do we put pictures in there that will give you, you know, visual ideas of what we talk about, but there are so many links. We have links to so many areas that you can learn more about the subjects that we've talked about. So that's what you can do for this one as well. We put them all together. Also on those show notes, Beckett and I are going to London next June. If you were at all interested in joining us in London, the final itinerary as well as costs are going to be available very soon. Go to our website, thehistorychicks.com and click the link. Honestly, you can't miss it. It's a big flashy picture of London with our logo over it and get signed up on that list so that when the reservations open up, you know about it. I'd also like to take just a minute to thank many of our friends who've helped keep the lights on here. These people, among others, have clicked our tasteful donate button on thehistorychicks.com and they've either signed up as a monthly supporter of our show or given a one-time donation. And we really appreciate each and every one of you. Even a dollar a month really helps us out here at the show. We'd like to thank Sue Lynn, Samantha, Heidi, Beatrice, Ellen, Bronwyn, Tammy, Barbara, Jesse, Michelle, Stacy, Heather, Autumn, Donna, Christina, Kari, Chris, another Christina, Michael, Michelle, Kelsey, Tara, Andrea, Gretchen, 
Anna, Ashley, Sarah, Tisha, RK, another Emily, Rachel, and a very special thank you to Elizabeth. These are just some of our friends who are kind enough to help support the show. Come visit us on any of our socials, as the crazy kids call it. Twitter, you'll get me. Facebook, you'll get both of us. Instagram, you'll get Beckett and Pinterest. If you haven't been to our Pinterest boards, you are missing out. There is a Pinterest board for every single episode that we've done. Beckett does an amazing job putting that together. That's her baby. And I am in awe of the work she's done over there on Pinterest. And to come join us in the History Chicks Lounge, our private group on Facebook, where every Tuesday we all toot our own horns, not Beckett and I, but everyone who is a member over there. It's a day where you can share your work on any new project from something very little to life-changing things. It's quite possibly the most upbeat example of all that is good in this world happens on Tuesday in the History Chicks Facebook group, The Lounge. If you liked what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us, or tell a friend or two. The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. 